This is the Counter Rock brought to you by the Irish Times, sponsored by Nifty Business. You can find out more at niftybusiness.ie. My name is Nathan Johns. I'm joined in studio here by Irish Times rugby correspondent Jerry Thornley, as well as rugby writer John O'Sullivan. And we're here to talk through Ireland's 38-17 demolishing, really, of France. Good morning, Jerry. The game was in Marseille. There was a lot of talk in the build-up about the atmosphere. It was in close to the southwest heartlands of French rugby. Jerry, did the velodrome live up to expectation? To hear the Marseillaise sunlight that in Marseille was quite exceptional. I actually recorded it. It really was spine-tingling, magnificent version of it. The atmosphere was rocking beforehand. They know how to do a pre-match build-up in France better than... Certainly better than they are if you're doing the Aviva. Like, they turn off all the lights, everybody turns on their phones, they start chanting Allez le Bleu. It's a magnificent cantilevered kind of undulating stadium, it's magnificent atmosphere from it. The crowd were very up for it, 67,000, great Irish contingent there. And uh, when the French started off and Jalabar has that little dart and they go out wide right and Fiku probably gives the pass too early to Penno, you're thinking, oh, um, the French are, have turned up here tonight. And then I kept... Then I noticed after about 10 minutes, up until about, up until about the red card for Willemse, it was such good commentary on the Irish performance that the crowd were actually quite becalmed. And it was relatively quiet. And you could even hear the fields of Athen Rye during the first half an hour of the game, quite audibly. Um, and then when Willemse got the red card, even the French crowd couldn't complain because it was so obvious. Not even the French... No, they just, they just couldn't even boo that decision. It was so obvious he was going to get the red card. But it did make them angry and it did start... That's when they start getting into the game then as they try to influence the referee and try to influence the officials. Succeeded spectacularly so when that ridiculous penalty was reversed for Jack Crowley winning the ball in the air ahead of Gail Fiku. Um... When the French TV director in the crowd earned that penalty, but they got angry and they got certainly into the game with the two power surges that French that led to the French tries. But by and large, they were pretty becalmed, and by the end, they were just reduced to booing the Irish fans for sitting in the fields of Acton Rye. It was quite a lovely sound. I think, yeah, you look at it from a perspective of they were they were out of control a little bit initially. Like Valenza has a late hit on Doris before he gets yeah. the porter shot, and then he does it again. And yeah. There is an element of, I think, the captaincy here with Gregory Aldridge. It's just trying to get them to focus on playing rugby and doing what they're supposed to be doing. And France seemed very distracted for, for much of that first half until they got their dander up towards, well, I was going to say towards half time. But you're right, for those two tries, it just seemed that they were focused all of a sudden mm-hmm. and then they scored tries. Yeah. And then they became distracted again by whatever it was. They just weren't feeling it. And then Ireland's performance gradually uh, Valencia sending off and Ireland's increasing control on the the, the game uh, pushed them to the periphery, basically. I don't want to spend too long on it because I think, as you said, Jerry, even the French had nothing to complain about with that decision. So I don't want to ref- dwell on it too long, but I think it is worth just worth mentioning that obviously that decision to, to send off Valencia, I think what well, he made two or three, ta- I think you mentioned, you mentioned three, made three tackles there in that first half, two of which were were cardable offences. I guess the only debate is should he have been given a straight red before and should he have actually had the opportunity to come back onto the pitch? Well, yeah, the first one was on Porter and neither is actually a tackle. They're just cheap shots. Well, the first one on Porter isn't a tackle. It's it's, it's a clear out. Yeah. Well, well, it's a very high clear out. And Porter, yes, it was argued that he went low, but Porter was a low target to begin with and Willemsen would have seen that and still went through with the high shot. I personally thought he was going to get red. That was my initial reaction at the time. When it was declared that he was only getting a yellow and he was coming back on, I was surprised. 
And then the second one, Brooke, no argument. He goes in, it's even higher. It's You could argue that one in Porter was more dangerous because it's, it's a shoulder to the forehead, whereas yeah. with Doris, it's a shoulder to the neck, I, chin I, area. But I, given, I think I think that the, the bunker review official had no option but to upgrade that to red, in part because it was a second offence, like, or maybe even a third. It, it was so, almost comical. The start of the second half. He's already been given his red card because it was a second yellow. The t- bunker could have saved himself some time almost. Yeah. And Carl Dixon at the start of the second half has to call both captains over and yeah. say, sorry lads, do his ex, take out his red card and brandish it all yeah. over again. It yeah. was, I mean, look, I, it, they, they, have, they have their procedure to follow, don't they? But it was a bit of a, an oh, unnecessary few seconds. I, I think Jerry summed it up perfectly there. You have that, that uh, Paul Valencia is three strides away from Andrew Porter. Andrew Porter doesn't drop his height. In that At time, he's lower. No, he's already he's, low. he's yeah. already standing there. He's made a tackle, so Valencia's coming in to clear out. Porter doesn't change his height, and Valencia still hits him. I thought it was nailed on red. I don't understand why you can, how you can possibly mitigate it or say that Porter dropped. He didn't drop. He was at that height. He was lower than if he was standing upright. But Valencia comes three strides away. He can he can hit Porter wherever he wants, and he chose to go in high. And and you know if they're going to be consistent about this in the game. You have to make those red cards. There's no argument about it. And the fact that he did it again, you know, if one of, if, if Doris is injured after he's done that to Porter, I think that it's, we're having a different conversation True. here. True, that's a good and, point. Yeah. And I don't think that you can find a way to fudge these decisions. We can possibly, we, we get into talking about French TV directors later on and you know replays no replays all this sort of stuff but it makes a joke of the Six Nations when you get 47 replays for one incident and no replays for another mm-hmm. and this the tournament the French media complain long and hard about this is what happens at the Aviva Stadium the, the reverse but I think they're the worst defenders of all the other thing about it as well is in all the years I've been going to France and in all the years I've seen a player get a yellow or red card and be sent off the pitch I've never heard such few complaints from a French crowd they like when the replays were being shown of the two, sh- the two high shots, you could hear the Irish crowd and, the, and booing because they they was just horrible to w- watch. And then when he gets the red card, not even the French crowd could boo about it because they just had to say, "Yeah, he's got, he's a goner." It was a fait accompli. The other thing about it as well is that Galti afterwards mentioned the red card several times as a losing coach always will. It's their get out of jail, and I've no doubt. That maybe Willems' presence there, or if they brought, if they'd had a, a full eight-man pack, maybe the two mall tries don't happen at the end. I, maybe it's a factor in how well Ireland's mall went and how generally well they defended the French mall. But it actually got their dander up, yep. Um, for the first time in the match, and then again they come back in the second half. They get back to within a score a second time. But in actual fact, if you look at it. In the time in the in the thirty two minutes where it's fifteen against fifteen or fourteen against fourteen, Ireland win that match seventeen three. They lose and when they've got the man advantage, they win at twenty one fourteen. In other words, when they were man down was when France got their two tries. So, for me, like Walsh Yolds came down to me at halftime, tapping the shows that there's no way Ireland are going to lose this match and or, unless they lose themselves. They're so much the better team, and watching it again made me realize how much more they actually were the better team, better coached perform much better. I mean, France have got serious... That's, that's a humiliating night for France. We can talk about them later. But Ireland were by far the better team with or without Paul Willems getting a red card. Just on that very, very quickly, because it was something I wanted to bring up. And I think you're right. The coach is always going to talk about a red card almost as a deflection tactic. Because I think 
Damien Galtier has a lot of questions to answer. Um, France had a world-class line-out at the World Cup in last year's Six Nations, and then they don't pick their best line-out operator in Cameron Walkie. They leave him on the bench. Ireland's line-out does a job on them. Ireland had a historically poor line-out. They fixed that, but equally defensively they were excellent as well. And they had six forwards on the bench, and they didn't use the lock. Paul Willems has 127 kilos going off. And like you said, Ireland scored two, two mole tries with him off the, off, off the pitch. I think for the second one, they had emptied their bench. They hadn't for the first. But there's still, what, that was half an hour gone when he gets sent off? You've got six forwards on the bench. You've got six two. I know you want that impact at the end. But if you've got six forwards on the bench and you've lost that much heft, yep. why yep. are you not making a change almost immediately com- yep. c- to compound the yep. fact that you probably picked the wrong second row in the first place? Yeah, yeah. bring Walkie on and sacrifice it back. Yeah, makes perfect sense. They should have done that for sure. Well, yeah. he's, he's athletic. The other thing that you bring on, or like Walkie is a, is a brilliant athlete, so he covers a lot of ground. So it's not like you're, he's giving you something that, that Valencia doesn't give in terms of athletic prowess as well. So it makes even more sense to bring somebody on in that vein because Walkie can also play, Cameron Walkie can also play in the back row. So he's very, very athletic and he would, he would, give, he would have given France a different dimension and you still would have had somebody and a very athletic forward to throw to in the lineout. So I don't understand that. And going back to Jerry's point as well, I think like Ireland probably left two tries behind them when it was 15 on 15. And at that time you thought, oh no, not, not another one of these nights where, you know, are they going to rue not finishing off those opportunities? And as things transpired, they didn't. And they were able to, to see out the game in a, in a very comfortable and emphatic way. So I think that talking about Fabian Galthi and his decisions, he spoke beforehand about matching intensity and physicality and taking it to Ireland and all that sort of stuff. And there seemed to be a preoccupation with France for the first few minutes. And then they just seemed to lose their way. Like there was a point where there was a great wide angle camera shot looking at it. And it was like watching... Ireland had the ball and France were defending and it was like watching in a golden oldies game, watching France they in defence. They kind of shuffled sideways. Fiku came out of the line to put some speed into it. The rest of them realised half a second later that, oh, you should be doing something like this. And it was just... It just very passive and soft at times. Very I think, French. I think, yeah, I think also though that this goes back to my earlier point about them Ireland just looking a vastly better coach side and particularly in their attacking game but also the defensive game. For me... Helped by the line-out having a perfect return of 13 and helped by the French losing four. And even those bare statistics don't tell the truth because some of the, so much of the, the quality of the French ball was actually quite poor because yeah. O'Mahony was putting great pressure on or Ty Byrne was putting great pressure on. And it said like two steals. I think there was three. I think at the end you give Ryan Baird credit for that last steal as well. Not that it mattered by that stage. So great day, day for the line-out. And that was a huge factor because all five Irish tries emanated from line-outs. We know it's the lifeblood of the Irish attacking game. And therefore... There must be a little element of Paul O'Connell and Andy Farrell and the players, and, and it's occurred to me. Was, any, was anything if, said after no, the match no, about no, the line-out? Just, no, not much, I don't remember, but I'm just thinking, there must be a part of them thinking, why the hell didn't it work like that against the All Blacks in the quarterfinals, or what difference it would have made? Anyway, that's gone. I, want, I didn't want to come here and talk about the bloody World Cup again. It's gone. Goodbye. Go away. Hallelujah. Who, Six Nations back. Who had, but for, who had but, 12 minutes in the World Cup sweet stakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, Nathan... And John, for me, Ireland won the game line because their attacking game was so much better. The amount of times that there is a dummy decoy runner that's keeping defenders guessing. Like Dante is flat-footed by Ty Burns' break because he's expecting to go out the back to James Lowe. And there's just so much more nuance. And then on top of that, Irish players, like going through it again, like Josh van der Fleer, footwork game line. Caelan Doris, footwork game line. Joe McCarthy, footwork game line. 
Whereas, I remember there was one move in the first half. They had a line out. Um, I think it might have been after Jack Crowley's one out in the full. No, another one. On, their, on our, the Irish 10 metre line, they have a line out. Their mall gets no traction. And they go, and it's up the middle from Dante, and it's stopped five metres behind the gain line. Luku throws out a wounded duck of a pass, I think, to to Aldred, who's nailed by McCarthy. McCarthy. And it ends up Luku kicking. So they end up starting in, in, on the Irish 10 metre line, end up in their own half and kicking. And that's an example of how Ireland won the game. And, and that line speed stayed all the way throughout the game. You've got to give Jack Crowley a lot of credit for that. Dan Sheen, I didn't realise how good Dan Sheen was until I watched it again. Like, not just the 10 carries, the brilliant darts, the try, but his tackle execution. I think he might have been the, the leading tackler. 10 and the other thing as well is they did their homework so much better they saw the big carriers the straight runners like Dante and so forth. they knew your man too laggy was going to come on he might add some freshness and the amount of time they went low on him and brought him down whether it was Conan James Ryan Josh van der Fleer, whoever it was they were just all going low on this guy and I just thought they were just a vastly better prepared coach side and it exposed that they're now money on favours, odds on favours, just to win the Six Nations, but even the Grand Slam. And France, whoa, that defeat for them. Like, that's got that's got echoes of Ireland's opening defeat in 2019. You remember the ripple effect that had on Ireland for a long while to come? Yeah, the England game, yeah. I think that's going to be similar for France. I really do. Well, yeah, that's it. a big call. I yeah. think. Well, it's interesting because now all of a sudden, if you look at, at and they keep in their player ratings, as they often do, um, sharpen the scalpel when France lose and... The halfbacks got three out of ten each, uh, Maxime Mucu and Matthew Jalibert. Galfi has a decision to make now. Like he was talking about these are the Bordeaux halfbacks that yeah. have tacked brilliantly all yeah. year in terms of their club form, have four of, of that Bordeaux backline, and we spoke to Noel McNamara obviously on the pod last week. Galfi has a decision to make in terms of not being knee jerk here. Because mm. if he goes for Nolan Legarek, who played well when he came on, Did, he certainly he? speeded yeah, up better. speeded up the game for them yeah. and then starts to look at okay, well, how do I change this? Or do I need to change this? And it would be a fundamental shift to go from we're happy and we're content and we're gonna get rid of the, the World Cup headache in our first match to getting a spanking at home in Marseille and then turning around and going, Well yeah, all I said last week isn't doesn't actually apply now. I've got to make, you know, three, four, five changes going to Murrayfield, where they don't don't have a good record and tend not to play well. Like no, that's that's a that's, tough yeah. ask for. They could go two two from yeah, two down easily. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Uh, my French isn't perfect, but uh, I do get the Media Olympic subscriber emails, and I'm pretty sure they were reporting this morning that Luku is 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 still going to start next week, even after that, or at least predicting reporting. Um, not quite sure, but there's there's talk coming out of France that that they they maybe won't might not be so knee jerk. Um, well, they've brought in two more Bordeaux. Oh, sorry, they've brought in two more young centres. So they've brought in the Bordeaux centre Nicolas Deporter, who played against Ireland in yeah. the, the yeah. Uh, Junior World Cup last year, and they've brought in Emile Gaeton, who played against Ireland in the Ireland Under Twenties, I should say, in the Six Nations he's last the year. He's the Poe fella. He is the Poe fella. He's outstanding. Brilliant. The two Brilliant. of them are are. He was a top try scorer in the top fourteen last season. A young strong. Centre. Great hands. He's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Like, people in France cannot understand why Galtier's not picking these lads. Like, Gail Ficou, with the best will in the world, is A, he's weary. He's played more minutes than anybody else on the pitch last weekend. Mind you, Ty Byrne was only just behind him. <laughs> that didn't seem to do him any harm. But, like, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Like, he's he went with a very short-term fix in the second row. He showed loyalty in midfield. He went with the, the established number two to... Dupont and none of these things have worked out well for him at all. So where does he go from here? And they've got and they've got a second row crisis now with the Willems. I'd like to face a hefty ban and Tafanua out and 
Yeah, and even them out, Thibaut Clamont's out. Your, your point about, uh, about going with physicality. So they picked Joram Mofana on a wing, who's ostensibly a centre. I know he's played wing for France, but they took off Louis Bielbieri. And when Bielbieri came on, yep. they looked at a different prospect again. Again, a little bit with Nolan Le Grec at Scrum Half. Oh, I think Bielbieri. the tempo he brought at Scrum he, Half changed you know, the game. It was a different France. And you were thinking, hmm, this is... The other thing as well is the, the, the only two times when they looked really like the French were very early on when Jalabar had that counter from his own half. And also in the second half, there was another counter, which ended up with Bielbieri going up down the left wing and they made great inroads there. But generally, they're not allowed counter from their own half because mm-hmm. they're so... Galtier and Edwards are so prescriptive, they just kick the ball. And they're just kicking it directly to James Lowe. Mm-hmm. And it's going back with interest. But it's, it's funny you say that. France kicked the ball 20 times out of hand. Ireland 33. You don't see teams out kicking France very often, as you say. They are there is the prescriptive. We've all, we've mentioned it a thousand times now, but we've all seen the Netflix clip from last season. Sean Edwards, where we're in our half, you kick the you know what ball. France went away from that game plan, and it cost him. And like you said, James Lowe was brilliant. His left foot was fantastic. Ireland kicked for three hundred plus more meters than France, and as we all know these days, generally speaking, there's a pretty good correlation between the team that kicks for the most meters tends to win the game. Um, and you mentioned there they kept kicking to James Lowe, and it. Like you said, came back with interest. Yeah, I I didn't think they did go away from their game plan so much. I think the only two times they did, they looked more French than any other points in the game. I think they should be given more license to that. Remember as well that brilliant try Damien Penno got in the Aviva last season. Galtier was practically giving out about that after the game because they went off script. Yeah. I think a pass went to ground and Ramos had to scoop it up off the ground. Was he it? ran backwards and, and it, it looked it, like, uh, to all uh, intents and purposes, yeah. that Ireland were going to nail him. Yeah. And he and escaped. Then, and he escaped. And they yeah. scored. But that was that. that uh, France aren't given Liberty the license to do that. That was, so, it was so French. You're right. And, and so French. Their attacking game seems to have gone backwards. So much of their attack is based on turnover ball. Their defence is their primary source of attack. And when their defence is, that line speed has been negated like Ireland did, they just, they look almost a little bit blunt. All they had going for them was their close-in power game. The one-off carries, the one bang, 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 until eventually Penno sweeps in around his wing and, and he's on, he's on Jalabert's shoulder. But like, they're, their starter plays were poor. Ireland's starter plays were way better, more varied, more nuanced, more decoy runners, getting over the game line consistently every time. France's starter plays were just trucking up the middle every time. I think they were panicked and they were muddled. So I just don't what, think they're very, I just think they look very well coached, John. When they were, yeah, and there would be an element of that. I suppose in some respects you're looking for the players to take responsibility here. So out in the pitch, whatever game plan you go in with, you still require your players to be able to problem solve on the pitch. So you, they still have to think for themselves, play the game that's in front of them, you know, tweak whatever is required. France weren't able to do any of that. They just went, okay, we're supposed to be kind of trucking this up in a very direct physical way. We're going to match Ireland's intensity. They got some ball. They got slow ball. They got hit behind the gain line. They never thought about what they were doing. They just kept doing the same thing. And it was only, as you say, towards... You know, when they got their dander up a bit and they got a little bit of, 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 if you like, go forward through the gain line with some powerful carries that you saw what they could accomplish. But as, like, as quickly as that materialised, it was gone again in the second half. I want to move on slightly more to Ireland. We were very lucky on Thursday night to be joined by Mr. Jacques Ninaber at our live event, previewing the Six Nations. John was on stage with, mm-hmm. with Gordon Darcy and, and Jacques. And he made a really interesting point, and I think we, we're going to play it now, um, about how when he was coaching against Ireland at the World Cup, South Africa wanted to target Ireland physically. Um, and what he said was, was very interesting. The Ireland game, I think uh, our mindset there was probably to go at them uh, from a physical point of view. 
And uh, that's where they just were more physical than us. They just out physical South Africa. And I think that sometimes there's always two narratives. Sometimes there's the 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 Irish media that drive a narrative, and then there's the South African media that drive a narrative, and then somewhere in between there's the truth. So that was Jacques Nienaber. He also made the point that everyone considers South Africa to be a heavier team than Ireland. He said if you add up the weights and divide by 23, I think Ireland were a kilo heavier. Now I think that might be James Lowe versus Cheslin Colby <laughs> making up that difference that for, sure, for, yeah. for Ireland. But you do the same for, for France. Um, in the forwards, which I think is, which is where it is slightly more important than, the, than overall, in the forwards, Ireland were giving up six kilos a man to the French. But that said, when Mr. Nienaber, one of the, you know, back-to-back winning, World Cup winning coach is saying Ireland are out physically in South Africa. Is it perhaps such a surprise then, what you were talking about earlier, that they managed to nullify the French power game the way they did? No, I don't think so, because I've, I've heard Nina Bar say this to us before, um, that they never thought that, that South Africa had a big physical edge over I think it's been a bit of a myth, largely down to Will Skelton, really, in, Sar- in the Saracens against Leinster and La Rochelle against Leinster, that, and the damage he's done in those games. But... I still think in last year's final of the Champions Cup, if James Ryan isn't, doesn't get concussed after 30 minutes, um, Leinster win that match because he had bottled, he'd completely negated Will Skelton that first half hour and Skelton only came to life after that half an hour was up um, when, when James Ryan went off. I think, I think Leinster were winning 23-7 at the time. Um, you saw what happened. I went to the La Rochelle this season and they did a number in Skelton there, particularly Ryan and McCarthy. Um, and we saw that like, Will Skelton had very little impact in that game. It was like... 10 carries for about 14 metres or something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't discernible. And um, so I think there's a little bit, it's just, it's become a dog-eared script and it's just become a, a little bit, I think, a little bit of an inaccurate cliche as well. That, you know, but that, that's the point. It's, it's probably yeah. time to put that narrative away, yeah, the issue is, with yeah. size. And also then if you have big athletes like Joe McCarthy with brilliant footwork and Doris with footwork and Conan with footwork and Van der Fleer, and then you've got a more nuanced attack as well that has decoy runners running off the ball and making defend. It, it's a great, that short passing game and that crowding of midfield and having lots of options, it keeps defenders guessing. And it's amazing how many times you look from behind the goal and they show you behind the goal and it's, it's always five against four or four against three, how they're outnumbering defences. That will, that will keep anybody like, anybody like Fico or Dante honest or Skelton or yeah, whoever. Yeah, I think I just want to make the point that two people who deserve huge credit here are Jamison Gibson-Park and Mike Cat. Mike Cat, the way Ireland set up an attack, the, the subtlety and nuances to the way they attack, the involvement with backs and forwards, that rounded 15-man approach, you know, the carrying, going out the back, making good decisions, it all falls on it. And also credit to Jack Crowley as well in terms Absolutely. of how he, how he managed the game. I think Absolutely. when you look at a couple of errors in the first half, I think it shows a lot of, of character and courage, and he has that in spades, to keep playing, not to hide, not to drop deeper, not to kind of become introverted in, you know, in the way you play, which will hurt your team. But I think Jemison Gibson Park, his choice of pass, his choice of, if you like, to pick out receivers, where he goes to, his vision, I think it's massive for Ireland. Yeah, no, I think it's a brilliant it's, game. And it's ground coverage yeah. and the work rate and yeah. you're right, the decision making and so forth. He just had a super game. But Crowley, if you look at the build up to the first try by Gibson Park, it does the loop around Bundy and takes right up the line and gives it out to Low and knows he's going to get smashed by mm-hmm. Dante. Get smashed by Dante, but from the recycle, Robbie Henshaw, lovely hands. There's a disconnect slightly on the edge. Ramos is hanging back too much. Bundy gets free, pops the ball inside Gibson Park, who actually, if you look at it again, he does the faintest and faintest and faintest of dummy passes, yeah. which completely checks Damien yeah. Penno. Otherwise, Penno gets them. 
Yeah. It's brilliant, actually. On the second try, the, he gets smashed follows, again. He gets smashed again. But he's he, he's called it before the ball's been recycled. He's telling Tyke Brown what he's going to do. He shapes as if he's might going to give a pass out the back to James Lowe sweeping. Dante is I convinced. I think Dante thinks it's going that way. Well, he is, and he gives a short little pass to Burn. Yeah. Great angle. So he's a. So while he's making these mistakes, mm-hmm. the, the kicking, the, missing the penalty, the grubber that went dead, the kick out in the foot, he's still playing beautifully. Right up the line, square on. Ah, oh, I thought. And then he, the, the, Hardy put a foot on the second half. And then those three conversions. Con, all those three tries into seven pointers. I thought he, given that he's only 24, given he's relatively little rugby at that half, given that he succeeded in gen, one of the greatest of all time, how well he played out there, it's going to give him the world of confidence and the, the team confidence in mm-hmm. him. But what I'd say is like, if, you, if you're looking to distill it down into a sentence or two, Jack Crowley before the game was, the question was, could he, could he inherit and fill Jonathan Sexton's jersey? Whoa, exactly. Going to France yeah. to play in Marseille in a volatile atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, and the answer to that question was, okay, how would he fare if there were one or two errors in his game? Like he, f- he coped brilliantly with everything that was thrown at him he added value so much value at times in the way he played and I think if you're looking at it just from that perspective you just say yeah Jack Crowley stepped up and filled the jersey and that's all you can do will he get better yeah like anybody who saw Crowley play in the season 2020 when he played for the 20s scoring tries the length of the pitch understands that this young guy has talent and he missed a year's rugby effect because of the pandemic just he was bad timing for him that age group missed a year's rugby then he's back playing rugby again I remember I bumped into him once having a coffee in the Orange Goat and Balls Bridge and he was down in Dublin with the 7th squad he just had to be walking past and that's but the poor lad wasn't playing it because there was no AIL no, he, so he, he just, also... He, but, but a year not playing rugby. Des- desperate for games. Yeah, and then he comes back into the Munster environment and he doesn't get much time, particularly 10, bit of 12, bit of 15, because Joey Carberry and Ben Healy and others are all there. JJ was probably still there at the time as well. Like, So if you actually look at it, I wouldn't say he's even played 40 matches at out half. He couldn't even, well, in, a, in another life, he could be down um, down with Roger and La Rochelle. Well, he couldn't play. The one thing that w- w- was surprising, I suppose, at the time is that Johan van Graan preferred others at out half. He didn't get a lot of game time in Munster. But he didn't get a lot of game time at 10 in Corcon. He actually played full back because they had Aidan Moynihan, I think, playing 10. And they didn't want to disrupt the system of Moynihan playing 10. That's so right, Jack Crowley right, played right. I went 15. to Clintarf Corcon semi-final in the AIL and he was an impact replacement the last yep. time. And he lit the game up when he yeah, came yep. on. But I think you're right. He might even been a 12 or 15 when he came. But yes, you're right. He didn't even start that match. You're right. So, um, so he's amazing. Had, he's had amazing. relatively little rugby yep. for a 24-year-old compared to what Raj would have had at that time or what Johnny would have done, even when Johnny came into the team. So he's only going to get better and better and better. Sure. He's got footwork. Drico used to say that he didn't, he was a bit too side-on giving the ball. I've watched that closely now in the last few games, particularly I thought on Friday night. He's very square on. And that's what's helping to keep yep. defenders guessing as well. So I just, yeah, he's getting better and better and better. But that end, end of season run in with Munster to the URC title was probably his first real extended run at 10. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's building up Munster. game minutes in a 10 jersey yeah. and you're starting. And, and, and it's only his fourth start for Ireland. Ireland supporters should be excited Absolutely. by the fact that this young guy has stepped up, stepped up in Marseille and the future without putting the markers on him. He just needs, there's aspects of his game that need to improve. But he has the talent and he has the aptitude based on everything that we saw last Friday night and he's got to prove it again and again and again there's no point in doing and it one off says he's next moment focused yeah. he's, got, he's got a very composed temperament 
he's a bit of a rock star. Let's be honest about it. No, he is. You know, he, he's got that certain something about him. It's that little bit of Raj, Corcon, Munster, 10 thing, you know? No harm, because you need that as a 10. Oh, very much so. He's intelligent too, isn't he? Yes, he is. Bright yeah. boy. Yeah. On that positive note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue chatting about Ireland in a few minutes. Welcome back to The Counter Rock with me, Nathan Johns. We're still here with Jerry Thornley and John O'Sullivan. One man we haven't mentioned before we go off Ireland, John, and you've written about him in Monday's Irish Times, um, is Tyg Byrne. We were just talking there during our little break about how in another day he should have been man of the match, arguably should have been regardless, but you know the romantic idea of giving it to a 22-year-old McCarthy in his yeah. first start yeah. rang true. But John, you've written about Tyg Byrne. We've talked about how impressive McCarthy was. What impressed you? About oh, everything about his work, his work rate, his uh, willingness to step up and lead. He called a line out. The line out was 13 from 13. He took the first, I think in the first 82 seconds of the game, he called the first two balls on himself. He took responsibility for that. The line out worked perfectly. He was a factor at the breakdown and slowing down ball. He carried, he ran obviously a brilliant line for his try and, and uh, facilitated by Jack Crowley's lovely soft hands. He picked a great angle to do that. Just every time you need, you looked around and needed, an, um, you were looking at an Irish player to do something, he was invariably there. He was there, you know, whether it was at the breakdown, you know, looking after the line out, carrying ball. Uh, he played with just a great intelligence and he led. He led by example. And I don't know whether it's the fact that he is likely to be, I think, Munster captain and succeed Peter Omani, but it sits very easily. Responsibility seems to sit very easily. And what struck me about his performance as well was I thought I was looking at Ty Byrne back in his Scarlet's days when we used to rave about him as an athlete, his ability to get round the pitch, carry, run. Like he's just... Uh, I just thought he had a brilliantly consistent impact throughout the whole game. I thought it was a great performance. The other thing that's extraordinary about Tygburn is that he played every minute of the World Cup. He played every minute of the warm-up match. I think it was against England and Samoa. That was five, every, six games every minute. He's come back to Munster. He's played eight games for Munster every minute. He's played well over 1,100 minutes, the most of any Irish rugby player this season. He's had the additional responsibilities, as you say, of being capped at Munster. To be honest, I thought it was weighing him down a little bit. I thought he played quite well in Toulon, but... There, none, none of his monster performs again. Where this is like Bundy earlier. I was talking about him now. Tiger Burns, but mm-hmm. whatever it is about the Irish environment, it just seems to refresh, recharge, refocus, and they just go back in and they all start playing their best rugby again. Like James Lowe's performance, yeah, you know, that's standing. Yeah, Bundy yeah. Aki, uh, Robbie Henshaw, excellent. Um, but Tigburn and any other, he made twelve carries, the most of any player. And as you said, the line of calling him some, and he goes eighty again. Yes, just eyes. Uh, you 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 list. You mentioned statistics there, uh, John. You, you made two clean breaks to the most yeah. player in the match. Exactly, John. You <laughs> did. You, you, you can find it in John's piece, which you, you can find in the Six Nations se- uh, section of our website, irishtimes.com. But you, you did list all those statistical categories. Second behind Aldrich and carries. Third in meters made, most by forward, most line breaks joint, most passes by a forward. Uh, second most attacking rucks hits. Most defensive rocks hits, and then likewise, he said that the five lineouts, which was there or thereabouts. I think Jerry touched on a point there, and I think I think it's very uh, it's an interesting one. If you look at so in the Ireland environment, there seems to be a little bit of pressure in most positions for your position, and maybe that is something that culture in itself is you're under pressure to perform all the time. 
good pressure to perform. So, you know, and you take it, if you look at Ireland's second row options, you've got, uh, obviously, Tyg Byrne and Joe McCarthy starting, you've James Ryan on the bench. And at one point, you saw on the sideline, Ian Henderson in a bib. So you understand that there is, there are options there and Andy Farrell is challenging the players to play and maybe the players are responding to that. Maybe there's a touch with when you're back at your province and you're a big fish in a small pond. Maybe there's a syndrome where you don't have to. Yeah, and also they took an injury crisis in the second row of months of the season. That, that's why they, they have to keep going back mm. to Tiger Burn. He had to play every week. Remember you asking me about Joe McCarthy's selection Nathan, last Thursday in the, at, the, at the captain's run in the velodrome. And I said to you, I really thought it was a brilliant selection. I thought not only was he comfortably the form, we'd all the stats, he was comfortably the form lock in, in, in Irish rugby this season, but that the selection of a 22-year-old like him, with his attitude, his energy, his fizz, would be infectious for older players. Very often an older player who's been there a while, it gets a young teammate comes in who just starts tearing it up and it gives them a lift too. And it probably gave Tyg Byrne a bigger lift than any other player in the team having this... Young Big Joe as Andy calls him beside him because he was so he's been he's a phenomenon and in actual fact yeah he probably deserved man of the match but you said in your, you gave the romantic notion next time you come on you got to say Young Big Joe in your best Wigan accents <laughs> Young Big Joe <laughs> I don't want to bring the tone down but I do need to ask the question given those three penalties in the first half were what allowed France to score that try just before half time they camped in the twenty two because there were three scrum penalties and all three were against Andrew, Andrew Porter. He gave away three penalties against New Zealand. Now, BJ Botha, funnily enough, the former Munster prop, is on Twitter analysing all these scrums. And he actually thinks one of them was very harsh against Porter, as he did, I'm pretty sure, during the World Cup as well. But perception versus reality, it doesn't really matter. As long as there's a perception of illegality, there's a problem. Is this becoming a bit of an issue? Yes, clearly a bit of an issue. And... I remember asking John Fogarty about this last week in the Algarve at one of the media days, and he said, yeah, they're, they're, it is a concern, the pictures that are being portrayed, presented to referees, and maybe even a bit of a preconceived notion amongst the refereeing fraternity now about Andrew Porter. The one of the aerial shots does show him scrumming at an angle. Another one doesn't show him scrumming at an angle at all. You go back to the All Blacks game, I think he was very harshly treated that day, and it wasn't just... Um, it was also Alex Corbusiero on his Twitter feed also questioned to the penalties. Well, he's actually worked with World Rugby. Yeah. He, whenever Mike, Cron, so, Mike Cron's the World Rugby scrum guru, yeah. whenever he took a bit of a break, Corbusiero was actually the guy setting the scrum rules for I, World Rugby. I think he's getting unfairly treated, Andrew Porter, but yes, it's an issue. I, uh, I was going to say just on that note, you've got to remember that there are two assistant referees and a referee looking at the scrum because a lot of these penalties are called in by the assistant referee. Yep. So you have three different interpretations. It's like the three of us going to a match and we all look at a scrum and we all might come up with different conclusions as to who's doing what to whom. Mm. And more often than not, that is the case. And if you look at the match... And then you might get a referee like Wayne Barnes who said, not for me, mate. Yeah, no. And and, and I think the thing is that, you know, a couple of those... I think Andrew Porter's been a little bit hard done by as well. I think it is a concern, definitely, because you can't keep going through matches and that focus being there, if you like, or, you know, being penalised. But I think for two of the penalties, they were, it was called in by the assistant referee. So it wasn't even Carl Dixon that's doing this. And that must be frustrating for for props because you've got three different people with three different ideas, potentially. Who's the English prop who got pained the last minute late scrum for Andre Pollard to win? Was it Genge? Was that his hand touches the ground briefly. It was briefly, a knee. It was, it was a loose knee, head. I think it was Genge. And, a knee, it was and Genge. a knee touched the ground briefly and it goes back up. But that was Ben O'Keefe. He was on that side of the I know, I know. But all I'm saying is, Nathan, is like it's a World Cup semi-final. The kick goes over. It costing the place in the World Cup final. Is, is, the, is, the, is the punishment... Does it fit the crime? Fit the crime. I mean... 
Well, BJ Bota says it in the very first, so he he, he examines some decisions. of the... These are big decisions. These are three points or maybe seven. He examines the, the first Andrew Porter penalty, whereas you see Porter's arm going out on the ground as if to say, like, I'm not, I'm not the one that's lost my yeah, footing here. Yeah. And it's called in as a penalty. And this rush, and this is the problem. There's lots of problems in relation to the laws, the game, and, and what you're doing and, and various aspects of the game. This rush to try and get scrums finished. If you're going to have scrums in a match, you've got to say it's a necessary evil, we'll call it. Well, With all, all due respect you've got to, give to, them the, time the, to the front contest. row people who are listening to this and love scrums. Mike Ross in particular, obviously, who, who feels that the old uh, goal line dropout should, should never have come into the game and it should have more scrums in the game. But if you're going to have them, you have to be fair to people. People slip. The other thing as well, Nathan, as well, to mention in all this, yes, you can pick out isolated scrum penalties. But in the build-up to the Calvin Nash try, uh, I think it's Doris trucks it up, and Winnie Antonio is out on his feet and just flops on the ground, and it's a line break. And you compare his work rate around the pitch over the hour he's on the pitch with the near 80 minutes that Andrew Porter invariably puts in. And you think of that crucial penalty won the second half. I think that actually might have been a little bit of a turning point. Was mm-hmm. that not when they got back to 17-24 yes. and he won that? I mean, he, he offers so much around the pitch more than a lot of other props do. And yeah, there were a couple of penalties against him, but I still think on balance, was it many scrums of the match? Was there seven scrums of the match? Many, bro- many rocks are there? Like, I still, uh, give me Andrew oh, Porter in the team. There's no argument here about Andrew Porter. Andrew Porter, player. oh, yeah. no, no, definitely. Like, you look, and, and Jerry's touching it there, you look at his contribution over, more often than not, 70-plus minutes in a match. You look Stunt. at the amount of work he gets through, the carries, the tackling, everything that he brings to the team. No, no question that he's worth his place. The issue is that they have to go to, they have to find a way of persuading referees or he has to change. It's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, you've, yeah. you've probably got to have to find yeah. it and say, "Look, just give him a fair crack," and then say to Andrew, "Right, okay, we need to, we need to, uh, we need to offer better pictures." Basically, we should mention how well Keane Healy played too in the yeah, ten yeah. minutes he was on yeah, the pitch for Porter well, and when he came on at the well, end. He's always been an excellent scrummager, hasn't he? Yeah, and he also um, you could see the energy he was giving to uh, getting his hands on the ball a few times, and the energy he was giving to that mall, one of the mall tries. He's right at the forefront of it. Like, well, the best scrummaging hooker they have is Ronan Kelleher as well. So, yeah. like, he makes a difference when he comes on to yeah. scrummage. He is, good he is noted too, really as good a scrummager. You say that, we should, uh, before I get accused of, because it's a few times now I've mentioned Porter, both on the sp- Twitter on Friday night as well. I mean, they're, they're, the furlong got obliterated in one scrum by the French replacement front row as well. So it's not just a Porter issue. There is probably, like you said, there's a wider picture issue sometimes in that Irish scrum, um, which no doubt they are, they're working to fix. Um, before we go, uh, we should mention the other matches that took place. Uh, Italy 24, England 27. Italy just fell short of a famous win in Rome. And then an absolute cracker. Probably will turn out to be the game of the tournament. Uh, Scotland 27-0 up at one point. Wales coming back to make it 26-27. Just falling short. I don't want to spend too long on these matches, but from an Irish point of view, like we said, that game in Cardiff was a cracker. But have you seen anything, open-ended question to either of you, anything that worries you from an Irish perspective in either of those two games? No. Would you be a strong word? I wouldn't. I mean, I don't want to seem overconfident. With only one round in that Ireland are shoe wins now to win a Grand Slam. But say, for example, our next opponents, Italy. I thought definitely under Casada they looked a little bit more pragmatic. Didn't run all the time. There was a bit. There was a bit more of a balance to their game, and yet there was still some wonderful attacking rugby. In the, particularly in the first, the two first tries. I know there were disconnects in the English defence, but even so, they were really well taken. Having the two Garbisis together is a, is, is a boon for them. Menoncello being back is great for them. I think Juan Ignacio Brex is a fabulous player, really underrated player. Montiani, they've got a lot. They've still got a lot of the the threats in the back line. 
that they had under Crowley, but I think they're a little bit more pragmatic, albeit, as you said before on off air, their defence, their performance fell away badly in the second half against a not very good England team. No, I think the other thing is that if you look at it, their discipline, like how many years do we talk about Italian discipline in matches? So doing, being precise, being accurate and then being disciplined as well. They didn't give away as norm- many pens they normally no, do, I didn't think. No, not, not as many, but they gave, at crucial times they took, they released the safety valve, the pressure valve for England and they gave away some soft stuff. They also, the scrum, which used to be a, a real strong point for Italian rugby isn't oh, quite hasn't been for no, a while now. It's 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 an issue for them. Some of their forward play was a little bit. The thing was that the the try at the end, which was a great try and um, a great way to finish the game, put a little bit of a gloss on the scoreboard. They were leading at half time. They had played. Yeah, they played some cracking. They didn't rugby. score a point between the thirty and the eightieth no. minute, did they? No, and yeah. that that's a wor- that's yeah. that's a worry because. Yeah. You can, and, and I know I had a quick look in the Italian papers and stuff like that, and it's it's upbeat as it should be. It's his first, it's Gonzalo Caseda's first game. But if you look at the quotes from Michele Lamaro, their captain, who played he, well, who played very well, he was Super. so frustrated yeah, afterwards. Mm. He was kind of saying, "This isn't good enough. We shouldn't take too much from this, other than the fact that it's you know we got a bonus point, fine." But the performance, as you rightly touched on, between the thirtieth and eighteenth minutes, is just not good enough, and it's. It's more uh, grist to the mill for... Wales, Scotland. Warren Gatland, how does he do it? Like, I just wrote that Welsh team off completely mm-hmm. before the game. Well, and, you, I, and at 27 nil down, everybody wrote them off. Well, the changes he made at halftime were huge. huge. But half, I think half attack, but Thomas Williams yeah, at night. Changed the, the game. Yeah. Um, their second row, Teddy, Teddy Williams, is that yeah, his yeah, name? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic second half performance. And, Wayne uh, Wright. Wayne Wright was excellent. Durr, Rafael in the back Rafael. row. Um, I think what happened like Scotland were a little lucky in the end they were massively lucky having led 27 nil. well I thought it was a great moment when Jonathan Davis the former uh, Welsh out half on BBC screamed oh no into his microphone (laughs) when there was a knock on towards the end kind of so you know his impartiality went out the window but yeah I think both defence coaches the Scottish and the Welsh defence coaches are probably looking for a new job at the moment but yeah it was a great comeback from Wales and you've got to balance the fact that that Scotland were mentally brittle. Like there's no other way to describe it. You look at it. You're 27 nil up. You've got to apply yourself. You give Wales huge credit for the manner in which they came back. And you could see with every every try that Wales scored in the second half, Scotland got kind of got retreated into became more introverted in what they were trying to do. There was one stage there where I think Finn Russell kicked the ball back down the middle of the pitch four times in a row. Finn Russell wouldn't kick the ball down the middle of a pitch in a ma- in a season four times in a row. That will tell you the mindset was just we need to we need to get down the other end of the pitch. He would run it back. Now, the only good thing from their point of view is John, they would have as Townsend more or less admitted afterwards they would have been seriously scarred if they'd lost that game. Oh, huge! Whereas yeah. they do have a win under their belts, yeah, yeah. and they do have a wounded France at home, slightly vulnerable France at home. I know it was three away wins in the opening weekend, but that ain't going to happen again. And it could be that Scotland will, with a home game now against France, could be two from two. And then, you know, then it'll be the usual the usual stuff from well, their media is, in particular saying they're, they're going to win the Six Nations. Looking side. forward to coming to Ireland in yeah, the last yeah, weekend. But I do it. think, you know, they, it's a big thing them getting that result. It is. I think it's a tipping point for, it's a tipping point for Scotland and France next weekend. Yeah, it is. Because you either go one way. France either rehabilitate, get back on track. Mm-hmm. Or they go zero from two, Scotland go two, two, zero, two zip, mm-hmm. and they get momentum then going into the rest yeah. of the tournament. And yeah. then, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of, 
they have that momentum, that confidence, and they can take it from there. And England could conceivably beat Wales at home, couldn't they? Be two from two as well. I think the the pragmatic side of it, yeah. Final word to you, John. We need to mention the 20s. You're the resident under-20s expert. I did watch most of the game. Very impressed with inside centre, Hugh Gavin. Uh, I thought Gleeson at number eight as well. He's the most experienced player in that 20s side, so no surprise given his professional experience with Munster. He led the way as well. Just, I'll give you the final words. What did you make of their 37-31 win in Aix-en-Provence? I thought they showed a lot of character. I mean, you talk about things being imperfect during a game and being able to react on the hoof. I thought they did a great job. I thought that they stuck at it. I think that the defensive side and and Richie Murphy, I remember Richie Murphy said this to me several times, that even during the Grand Slams, the most difficult aspect uh, to prepare for is trying to get uh, the defence sorted out at under-20 level. Uh, because it's a, a completely different dynamic. They've got all the attacking chops. They they still have that. Hugh Gavin, you mentioned. Wilhelm de Klerk, the two centres are very good. I thought Jack Murphy, the out-half, had a super game. He very composed, managed the game very well. Oliver Coffey is very good. So they have... They have some very good young players that, and even the you know two wings, Hugo McLaughlin playing out of position, normally a fullback, uh, and Finn Tracy, who's a centre, playing on the wing. And then you go up front and, and Brian Gleeson looked like he was playing a junior cup match and he was a senior cup player. And that says a lot because he was playing against some very big guys, but I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And, and you can see that he leads. Joe Hopes was there from last year, Evan O'Connell, the captain as well. There were aspects of it. Mike Ross touched on it. He thought that the French got away with blue murder in, in the scrum. So there, there, there are aspects of it that they need to improve. France didn't pick maybe six no. players that they'll have yeah. in the Junior World Cup. Yeah. So, you you know, everything is relative in that respect. I watched a bit of uh, Wales and Scotland in the 20s as well. So um, I wouldn't be writing the... the uh, the eulogy for the third Grand Slam, but there's a lot to admire about the way they played and the character they showed. And they kept playing, didn't they? They, they kept exactly playing. that, exactly that. They kept playing even at the end of the match. Mm. You're thinking at some point, okay, safety first. Just kept trucking, yeah. carrying, 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 gain line, gain line, gain line, all the way up the pitch. There's a touch of the Andy Farrell about Richie Murphy, isn't there? It's a similar kind of approach. Yep. Very much so. He he keep hands. playing, keep yeah. playing, keep playing. He lets them play. He yeah. says play with a heads up, and that's mm. very very important. And part of if you look for a little bit of the DNA, the twenties DNA through their success, their Grand Slam success, getting to a World Cup final last year, is the fact that they play good rugby. They're mm. they're good to watch, mm. and that's three different teams essentially that you're looking at. So yeah, huge credit to Richie Murphy for the way he uh, he enables or he he gives the team the the license to go and play and it it's heartening it's good to see um you'd like to see maybe one or two more players coming through from the 20s successful sides if you like the sides that have won grand slams but we'll see jesus there's never been a weekend like it you no. think of the history of Irish rugby no. the Irish senior team and the under 20s going over and doing what they did last weekend yeah and the way they did us too it's <laughs> extraordinary on that positive note we'll leave it there for today my thanks to John O'Sullivan and Jerry Thornley I've been Nathan Johns this is the Counter Up sponsored by Nifty Business we'll be back on Thursday very special guest joining us on Thursday to preview Ireland versus Italy we'll be back then <laughs>